Um, okay, so coming on now, a guy who probably needs no introduction, but I'll bring him on anyway. John Ramsey, portfolio manager over at Measure 8 Venture Partners. What's going on, man? Hey, Patrick. Good to be here. Thanks a lot. Good. Yeah, well, it's good to have you here. It's exciting. Now, now, you know, listen, not everybody is out in the open. Some people live under rocks and in caves and stuff. They may not know what Measure 8 is. Can you tell them just briefly why you're here, what Measure 8 is? Yeah, just tell them. Yeah, absolutely. And um, interesting here that I no, need no introduction. Maybe you know something that I don't, but uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, just a you know brief background on on Measure Eight. So Measure Eight's a canvas focused asset manager. Uh, we have a venture capital arm as well as a hedge fund arm. We keep the two vehicles separated. We have a full team around both sides. I predominantly work on the hedge fund side, and um, the firm was started in January of 2018. It was founded by Boris Jordan, who's the chairman of Cureleaf, um, which I'm sure you've had on before. And I've um, heard that name before. Yeah, Maybe and so Boris really started Measure Eight as a, a venture capital firm focused on uh, making minority investments in other cannabis companies outside the purview of what uh, was Cureleaf at the time. It was called Palutech. Um, and uh, I joined in the spring of 2019, la launching the cannabis focus hedge fund in August of 2019 with our, my partner, Justin Ort, who's our CEO now. And um, the hedge fund is a traditional long short vehicle, but we deploy um, what we call a full spectrum of trading and investing strategies around the uh, cannabis sector, which I'm sure we're gonna go into. Yeah, so John, I'm, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to walk us through whatever you, whatever you've, you have prepared for today. Happy yeah. to come back and, and do some Q and A with you. But the strategies I think are, are super important, especially for the folks in the chat today. Um, and I'm sure we'll breed some questions. So yeah, all, absolutely. You, man. all right. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah. So today uh, this is uh, mainly meant to be an educational around training strategies um, for those of you that are trafficking in the cannabis sector, uh, mainly in the public markets. Um, and, you know, one thing I'll say is uh, before I start is that anything that I say is not meant to be investment advice or recommendations. Um, anything I say is mainly just my opinions. Um, to start with a brief background on myself, uh, I joined Measure 8 from a firm called FNY Capital, which is a principal trading firm. Um, it's ran like a multi-strategy hedge fund, but rather than investing out, outside capital, they're investing partnership capital. And I was running a systematic macro strategy for them. So a rules-based system mainly focused on liquid currencies, uh, G10FX, so liquid currency markets, um, liquid futures and commodities markets, interest rates markets. So very far from cannabis. Um, I started to look at cannabis in 2017. Um, as I was kind of looking at more esoteric commodity markets, I, I kind of thought that it was cool that there was this uh, supply demand imbalance in, in the Canadian medical market, which was eventually going to flip to an adult use market. Um, and also realized there wasn't many institutional eyes focused on the sector. So kind of saw as an opportunity to specialize in something and Get, get to know the sector from the ground floor. Uh, eventually started running um, a dedicated canvas portfolio for FNY and had the fortune of getting to know all the leader, leading management teams and companies in the sector um, in 2017 and 2018 and participating in a lot of the go public rounds for some of the leading US operators today. Um, I come from a trading background. I've always been extremely passionate about trading. I know that uh, 
day trading and, and trading the markets is in vogue right now ever since the coronavirus lockdowns. But um, I'm proud to say that I was uh, very similar coming up when I was in college. I was the guy skipping skipping classes to trade on a, on a trading setup that I um, downloaded and installed in, in my uh, business school's Bloomberg lab. Uh, so I was always extremely passionate about trading, got into trading and and you know, started to uh, learn various strategies and kind of different dynamics in place of the market, which I think is is helpful today to, to put into context into the cannabis market. Um, for those of you in the, on, on the retail side, trading and investing in the cannabis sector, I think it's very helpful to understand kind of how institutions are thinking about the space and what they're focused on, um, and, and getting to getting to kind of know uh, getting to know the different strategies that they are implementing in the markets, um, but. Before getting into into the details of some of the strategies, um, you know, obviously anyone that's been focused on the cannabis sector knows that it's extremely volatile period. Um, I can't begin to count the amount of 40% off the highs moves that I've seen in the sector. Um, and uh, just, just understanding that volatility and kind of where it's stemming from, I think is really helpful to, um, you know, taking a step back and staying invested for the long run. I think everyone that's probably listening right now believes in the cannabis industry as a whole, believes that it's going to be a huge sector. Um, it's already a really big sector. It's only growing. Um, regulations are moving the right direction, but you know, how do you stay invested in the game around that volatility? Um, you know, there's moments of time where the sector is experiencing uh, what I like to call capitulatory moves. Um, so uh, capitulation in stocks themselves based on trading flows from a lot of times, larger institutions that um, are on the wrong side of that volatility. Um, so how it how it's seen on my end and in, in my world is that risk managers and, and risk teams are tapping portfolio managers, investors on the shoulder and telling them they need to get out of their positions. They need to take risk down. And a lot of times when that's happening, it's happening at the worst times, the times where you do not want to get out. And, you know, it's at, at on fringe lows. So that's kind of what draws drives a, a capitulatory move. Um, it's a little bit more art and science uh, as identifying it. Um, but typically in the cannabis sector, when stocks are stocks, especially on the U.S. plant touching side, can move up and down 5 percent on no news on any given day. Um, and, and that's just something that you have to be uh, used to and aware of. Now, when the stock is down, let's say 10 percent or 10 percent plus on very outsized volume um, on no fresh news, that's that's could be a sign of capitulation. I'd say every different capitulatory move feels different. You know it when you're in one and you know it, I guess, in retrospect for sure. But um, overall, just in terms of a strategy of being able to stay invested in the, in the sector, uh, you really need to be able and willing to buy on those capitulation moves to lower your average cost, stay in the game, um, and be in a position of strength when the next upswing happens, which you know we've seen a lot of up and down moves like that in the cannabis sector. I think just looking back since um, since I started following the space, I think the the Horizons uh, ETF is only up about twelve and a half percent net, um, and so there's been just been a huge amount of volatility around that. Obviously, there's been massive moves up and down in, in the securities, um, so there's a lot of different ways to take advantage of that. Um, buying into one of those capitulatory moves um, is one way, and it's obviously easier said than done. Um, so I think that go going into kind of the net. You know, the next point is just what drives those kinds of moves, what drives longer term um, price swings 
and multi-month moves in the cannabis sector. Um, I like to think of it as um, just kind of understanding where the themes lie in the in the cannabis sector at any given moment, what are investors really focused on. Um, over time, the main themes that have persisted have been regulatory change. So states or countries turning on medical programs, eventually flipping to adult use programs, are kind of two of the main ones, um, but also margins, profitability, um, and M&A strategy, as well as capital raising have all been very persistent themes. Um, and, and kind of as a, as, a, as a use case, I like to go back to what I like to think of as the big bang moment in the cannabis sector, uh, which to me is Constellation Brands' first investment into Canopy, which I believe was around October of 2017. Um, so around that time, all the Canadian licensed producers that many know today, listed on NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange were uh, I think only listed on the TSX or some of them even listed on the CSC. They're only servicing the medical market in Canada. Uh, there weren't many banks following the space uh, from an analyst perspective. And uh, Constellation coming in really did two things. It put a, a big stamp of approval on the industry as a whole, the cannabis industry as being something to, to look out for and, and be mindful of uh, as being a real sector. Um, but also put a stamp of approval on the on the Canadian landscape and kind of eyeballs on the on the big catalyst of of that medical program eventually flipping to a recreational adult use program. Cannabis wasn't legalized for adult use at the time in Canada, and kind of just looking at the supply picture, uh, I think collectively the licensed producers probably were going to be able capable of growing around three hundred to four hundred thousand kilos, let's call it, of, of cannabis. Um, in Canada collectively and analysts were pegging the market at around a million, a million kilos of, of demand, um, which in retrospect was probably too high. Uh, I think it still hasn't reached, reached that level of demand yet. Um, you know, but it, it's very analogous to kind of where we are in right now in the U S sector. Um, I know everyone kind of on the line is, is very optimistic about the U S sector and everyone's got their eyes on, on federal legality here. Um, and I like to kind of think of us in this wait and see moment, hold your breath moment of waiting to see what that regulatory landscape is going to look like. Um, we're all kind of waiting on Chuck Schumer and a, a host of other bills, Safe Banking Act, um, as kind of guideposts to show us what the market's going to look like in the future. Um, so, you know, back then in Canada, it was very similar. We didn't really know. We had estimates out of what the uh, market size is going to look like. Full regulations weren't out yet either. And that investment by Constellation drove a multi-month rally in the sector. Um, institutions that may have not put ha had done their work yet went to the largest cap stocks first. So your top four or five by market cap stocks were leading the rally on the way up. Um, you know, and I think that's something similar that you could see on a on a U.S. legalization event. Um, institutions turning to to the, to the largest uh, U.S. cannabis companies. Um, and, and typically the largest market cap companies tend to be the leaders in the sector and usually are the most well capitalized. Um, so from a uh, balance sheet safety perspective, you know, those uh, you, you could feel a little bit safer in. Um, but towards the end, towards the end, later stages of that rally, which I think lasted on, up until January of 2018. Uh, in, so in, in December 2017 and January 2018, you start to see lower market cap, more speculative names in Canada. Um, start to appreciate, um, you know, in a month going up 200%, 100%. Uh, so really starting to pop. It's very similar to what you saw 
in January, February this year with some of the more speculative names on the, on the CSC that are plant touching in the U S um, start to go on um, really big moves upwards and, and starting to surpass some of the larger caps by, by percentage moves. Um, so I think from a, from a trading perspective, um, it's, it's important to be aware that those kinds of securities, while may not be um, the most fundamentally sound and make the most sense fundamentally, those stocks can move extremely high and being in a position to, to be able to play that is important um, if that's your goal. And I, I will pause and just say that, you know, there's a lot of different strategies and a lot of different goals for, let's say, an investor or a retail investor. So I think it's important to just understand your long-term goal. If you want to just be invested in the cannabis sector or invested in, in equity markets as a whole, um, and you're willing to assume that volatility, that's perfectly fine. Uh, there's ways to do that. And, and so it's important to um, you know, have the discipline to stay invested and not try to trade around your positions if that's your goal. If your goal on the flip side of that um, is to make money every single day, um, day trade the sector, go home flat and don't take any overnight risks. Um, you know, you have to be willing to assume those risks that come along with that strategy and have the discipline to do that and not uh, turn a day trade into a longer term trade um, and, and, you know, stick to your plans and stick to your guns, stick to your strategy. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to, to make money uh, in this, in this sector, just understanding your goals, I, you know, I think is important. So, um, but, you know, going back to the, um, the analogy I was trying to make is this, as that, as this, the theme of, of um, the undersupplied market in Canada back in 2017 started to play out, companies were raising money on the back of that strength and raising money on what was called, what was uh, coined at the time funded capacity. Uh, so companies were raising money saying, promising that they're going to take their square footage from X to three X or five X analysts were then uh, taking those numbers and, uh, spitting out sales estimates, uh, you know, based on pricing um, and, and a whole, whole host of other assumptions um, that, in hindsight, you know, didn't exactly hold up. But um, at the time, it was only fueling this the speculative rally, and uh, a lot of that, a lot of that, uh, that funding um, went into the theme starting to shift from now the market being undersupplied to, wow, in a year out, two years out, this market may be extremely oversupplied if those demand projections don't um, come to fruition, um, which eventually ended up happening. Um, so being aware of kind of the, the underlying themes um, that are happening and then the change and the evolution of those themes, I think is extremely important in understanding massive inflection points in price action in the sector. Um, so in that instance, in January and February, of 2018, the licensed producers then had what if it wasn't a 40% move off the highs. I mean, some of the stocks were probably down even more than that off the highs. It was a pretty massive move down, period of heightened volatility that in retrospect ended up being a good time to 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 add if those were if those are your securities you're focused on um at the time. And then, you know, fast forward to uh the fall of that year is when Tilray went public and many of you know, went to 300 after it went public and was a whole new speculative run up. Um, but I think that those kinds of cycles that you see as, as themes are changing and, and the narratives are shifting have happened in the U S as well on the U S side of things. Um, back, back in 2018, um, a lot of the leading U S multi-state operators were private companies um, rolling up minority interests uh, doing pre-public funding rounds at pretty low multiples and then flipping and going public on the markets at much higher multiples 
Um, so there was a lot of uh, a lot of stock that was raised uh, previously at much lower valuations. People were up a lot on their on their investments that year, and so I think a lot of the multiples of those raises were um, kind of price per- per- perfection. So just being aware of uh you know of some of those uh mul- multiples appreciation in such a short period of time is important. Just understanding how those uh, funding rounds ended up faring, and a lot of them uh, went under pretty pretty fast. There was um, a pretty limited pool of capital at the time that's only expanded ever since. But today we're still talking about a limited pool of capital in the U.S. Uh, that's that's been a major theme. So there's a whole host of catalysts around expanding that um, pool of investable capital. Um, in the in the CBD and hemp space, there's been a pretty similar uh, boom bust cycle and theme of around you know projection of what the CBD market is going to look like around the spring of of uh, 2019. And uh, how large the the hemp market's going to be, and there was a whole host of capital raises and a lot of funding going into production as well in the hemp market, and um, and then all, and then uh, as a, a lot of you know, the FDA is kind of dragging their feet on guidance on um, on what you know on clear guidance on the on the CBD market uh, led to a big boom bust cycle in, in that market as well. Um, so while the cannabis sector doesn't always exactly repeat itself um, to the T it definitely does rhyme around the different themes. And I think understanding how those themes are uh, transitioning and, 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 uh, and evolving is going to help kind of identify those capitulatory moments and inflection points in the cycles um, to, to profit off of. Um, so kind of going into a little bit more of the strategies um, themselves Um at, at Measure 8, as I, as I was mentioning, um, we like to think of how we invest and train the sector as a full spectrum apo- approach. So we're using all the tools under our tool belt from a training perspective and investing perspective to uh, take advantage of every different profit uh, generating opportunity there is in cannabis. Underlying the, um, the core strategy, the fund is a fundamental long short strategy um, where you know our long holdings are companies that uh, we, you know, we're meeting with manager teams and doing fundamental work around the earnings powers of, the, of those companies themselves and kind of the business strategies and competitive advantages. Um, uh, just to, to, to kind of hone in on a, on a theme right now that's, um, that's played out and, and kind of how to think about some of the winners on the long side is that last year, what we saw was companies that were rewarded and did the best, in my opinion, were companies that um, had the foresight to invest capital in the most impactful markets uh, and turn on production assets at the exact right time where those states were ramping up either from a patient perspective or flipping from medical to adult use and turning on that cult- cultivation in a supply constraint market. It was extremely impactful to revenues and, and, uh, and, and earnings. And that flowed through into beating consensus ep- estimates and company guidance. And it's, it's extremely important to understand kind of company guidance, as well as the sell side consensus, um, because that's really what's driving, uh, I guess, your quarterly performance off of a, you know, company to company um, based on where those stocks are priced today and and what they're priced in for in terms of doing in terms of consensus quarterly estimates. Uh, So companies that invest in Illinois, Pennsylvania, um, and turned on those assets in the back half of the year, um, we're beating we're beating estimates um, hand over fist just based on those that how those markets were um, performing and their market share that they're capturing in those markets. 
I think going forward, the two markets to, to look out for are New Jersey, New York, companies that are investing heavily in those markets, um, and then watching out for potential uh, medical markets like Pennsylvania and Florida to flip to adult use would be, would, are gonna, is going to be really big as well. Um, so on the, on the long side, you know, we focus on, on companies that are doing well geographically in, in regions that are impactful, but also management teams that are astute to uh, take advantage of and, and, and see that kind of opportunity in state by state. And on the short side, I, I will say that shorting in the cannabis sector is definitely not for the faint of heart. Um, you know, the, the, the stocks in the sector can be way more irrational if you're only shorting on fundamentals. Uh, we like to think of our shorts as having a clear catalyst or some kind of out for, for that stock to underperform in the near term uh, to justify taking that risk of being short that stock. Um, but shorting in the, in the cannabis sector, um, you have the benefit of, of realizing the variance in performance across the sector. Uh, there are so many winners and losers over time. If you look back on just general uh, vari variance in the performance of the stocks, there's companies that have gone into receivership, have gone on the brink of going um, going under, while you know their brother and their neighbor um, have you know blossomed and and have turned into multi billion dollar companies. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity um, from an alpha generating pers uh, perspective to. Um, you know, to, to reap those kinds of uh, long, short um, rewards from having that kind of strategy in your portfolio. But it's 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 not for the faint of heart. And I wouldn't recommend it for um, a passive investor or a passive uh, retail trader. Um, other other strategies um, that that are um, important to uh, to focus on that we that we employ risk arbitrage strategies. Um, so you know, consolidation is a, is a big theme right now in the cannabis sector it has a big, been a big theme. And I think it's only going to continue, um, being aware of where risk arbitrage spreads and, and deals are, are trading, I think is important for, for retail to understand and any investor, um, during the last, uh, kind of retail speculative run up in the cannabis sector, which I believe was in around February when Tilray was, uh, I think up, you know, up a huge amount just that in that month alone, the beginning of that month, um, the company Tilray and Afria were obviously going through a merger um, that just recently closed. And, it, you know, just tracking that merger ARB spread, um, that spread went out uh, at, at a certain time in, in February was at a 400% annualized gross return if you had set the spread. So um, you had to be short Tilray and long Afria at a certain ratio. Um, there's plenty of resources online if, if you're not familiar with risk arbitrage uh, trading and how to set a spread. In, in that sense, there's plenty of resources um, online to understand that how, how that works. Um, but you know, at a 400% uh, annualized return, the market was pricing in, and it was extremely irrational to price in. You know, the the deal break. I mean, it it there was really it was pretty much pricing in that the deal was going to break right then and there, um, and eventually that deal closed. So it was a you know a huge um, a hugely asymmetric risk reward. Uh, skewed to the risk reward uh, opportunity, setting that spread. Um, there's been a lot of other risk arb spreads, nothing as wild as that, but there's been others that you know you kind of have to assess uh, for yourself the the, the probability of that deal closing. Um, uh, another uh, um, another thing to focus on: short term and catalyst trading, event trading, uh, earnings being one of the major events in the sector. Um, I think it's important to understand that. 
you know, the, the, the stock market as a whole is a forecasting mechanism. Uh, cannabis market, while not being as efficient as, as the overall stock, mar- stock market, does um, do a decent job of, of pricing and earnings. You, so, so trading on earnings is not just uh, predicting if the company is going to beat or miss on the earnings. It's kind of also just understanding the dynamics of uh, where the bar is set in terms of consensus expectations um, and uh, how uh, and, and how are price, stocks pricing in the, those expectations. So, uh, example more recently in the in the in the can in the Canadian sector. Um, there was pretty low expectations coming into that uh, these last quarterly reports. And you start to see that with uh, the price action of the stock starting to uh, a lot of the stocks start to sell off into the earnings reports before the earnings reports starting to price in a little bit of a, a miss across the board in the Canadian sector. And that provides an opportunity from a counter trading perspective on a miss of the prints, kind of like a sell the news uh, uh, buy the rumor, sell the news kind of situation where um, people were, you know, selling the rumor of the of the cannabis uh, of the Canadian sector missing, buying on the uh, and then on the flip side, buying or covering on the on the actual prints that missed. And you saw a uh, you know you saw you saw more recently, Kronos was the first one that traded up after the earnings, um, and the sector has had a had a pretty big move up afterwards, which I think is driven by more than just earnings. Um, but other um, events around the sector, um, looking at the options markets and how volatility is priced around events. A good example of that was presidential elections more so recently, uh, where, you know, cannabis was obviously a sector that was going to be um, that was going to benefit from a blue wave. Um, so ahead of the U.S. presidential elections, other sectors like the EV sector, um, cannabis, other sectors that, that were going to benefit from a blue wave, volatility was priced up going into that event. Um, now, cannabis wasn't priced up too much more so than any of the other sectors. And just knowing what we know about um, you know, where Canadian licensed producers, which are used as proxies of uh, U.S. Uh, legalization event, um, could trade on, a, on an event like that. Typically, like 20 to 30 percent is not out of the question of how high they could have traded up. Um, so just taking a look at that, that upside and where the options market was pricing in, they were probably paying you about, I think back at the time it was around four to one to take on that bet that they're going to be up 20, 30 percent after a blue wave. The betting markets and polling was saying that Blue Wave is going to be around 50-50 odds. So you have a positive expectancy on that trade. Um, so those are short-term trades and, cal- and callous trades to take advantage of. Um, having a positive expectancy is important. So defining your upside, defining your downside, um, you have to make some assumptions on, on what your upside would be and what your downside would be in different various events. And then putting a probability on those two events happening, you can calculate your expectancy um, I think that's really important for a you know a retail investor to 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 focus on just kind of being a little bit more formulaic in your approach and your strategy and what you're buying and selling. Um, and uh, capital raises, while you know many retail may not have access to to participating in capital raises, just being aware of capital raises and and the pace of capital raises, I think is 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 extremely important. Um, I think every single upside inflection point uh, high in the market has been pr- uh, preceded by a huge influx of capital raises on public markets. Um, so understanding where that stock, h- how much of that stock is being placed in, in new public hands at higher valuations um, could create an overhang if there is some kind of down move in the sector. Um, it's happened plenty of times in the past. I'm sure it will happen in the future as well. 
companies are very opportunistic in terms of raising capital. Cannabis is extremely capital uh, intensive business. So companies are very opportunistic when the sector is hot to raise capital for, for growth plans and for M&A. Um, so being aware of that as an overhang as well when the sector is hot um, is pretty critical. Um, and then um, just kind of general tips. Um, I mentioned uh, knowing your strategy. Uh, for those of you that um, you know are, are, are looking at fundamentals and kind of ha- how, uh, how to get a fundamental edge as well, reading MDNAs, reading financial reports, um, and, list- and reading the transcripts of earnings calls is, is extremely important. All of you can do this at, at home. Uh, I think reading the transcripts of the earnings calls are much more are much more beneficial than actually just listening because you learn you 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 read a lot more and you can read at your own pace. There's a lot of things you may miss. Um, also, looking at the investor presentations, slide decks on all the websites of the companies. There's a lot of information in there, um, so you kind of can use those tools to your benefit of gaining your own fundamental um, opinion on stocks. And not just relying on uh, what you hear third hand from us from sell side or other analysts or research or internet forums. Um, a quick note on technicals: I know that a lot of uh, uh, my colleagues and a lot of uh, um, other people on the institutional side that I talk to think of technicals as a little bit of, of funny business. Um, I I would say that technicals, while I, if your approach is a longer term approach. It should not be the end all be all, but I think it is important um, as a context clue um, and, and a good tool under your tool, but tool belt to um, focus on with uh, fundamentals. So what I like to focus on are trend lines. Um, is a stock in an uptrend still? Has it broken a trend line and failed highs and failed lows? Um, I think are, are, are just general price action, I think are pretty important. Uh, I don't rely too heavily on any one or two indicators. Now, some traders have been successful in relying on those indicators and everything is kind of something that you have to identify as it fits for you and fits under your strategy, then it could work. Um, but, um, you know, over the short term, I think technicals are more important uh, over the long term, less important and, fun- and fundamentals are, are more important. Um, and uh, let me see if any of you all have uh, questions on the on the U- YouTube chat and uh, I'll invite Patrick back in the room as well if he has any questions. I'm here, pal. I'm here. Um, okay. So there's one question. It was, it was from earlier on, but I just, I, you know, I don't know how far you want to get into this, but let's go ahead and show it. Okay. So uh, I don't even know how, how you say that. Birch BJ1. For John, uh, who does your fund measure eight work with? Yeah. So uh, prime brokerage has uh, been a big topic and, and a theme more recently in the industry. Um, obviously it's extremely hard to, and it's more cumbersome to, to prime brokerage cannabis securities. And so as an institution that's invested in the cannabis sector, we have multiple prime brokers. Um, I'm not going to name any, um, specifically, um, but I'm sure you've heard of them. They're, they're, they're brand name, um, prime brokerages. Um, and uh, one comment I'd like to make on, in terms of, uh, the, uh, the talk around prime brokerages, uh, like CSFB, uh, Pershing in the past. Um, putting a, you know, putting a halt on, on clearing cannabis stocks. Um, from our perspective, that hasn't forced any forced selling um, in the markets out of those prime brokers where they told you, you need, to, you need to get out of your cannabis stocks and sell them this instant. I think that's a little bit of a, um, of a false rumor that's, um, that's been inherent in the market. 
uh, it's definitely um, stoked some fear in the market that that was the instance. So I think that people were selling ahead of that um, kind of rumor. But in my in my experience, that hasn't been a, a forced selling moment. Got it. Um, okay, here's another one from Justin. What's your outlook on the Mexican market? And why don't we expand that question past just Mexico into specific international markets that you guys might be looking at? Sure. Yeah, uh, we definitely are, you know, keeping a close eye on the EU as an international market. Justin, to answer your question on the Mexican market, I've been disappointed that that market hasn't come to fruition and hasn't had day one of sales more recently. I think it could be a huge tourist market. Um, and um, I'm hopeful that that eventually will happen. Um, it's just I think there, that, that 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 market's going to have to deal with a lot of red tape around differing political opinions and views to, to get there. Um, there's also there's obviously been a stall in, the, in that market more recently, um, you know, out of the legislature. But I'm still hopeful that that's going to happen. Um, you know, the Latin American market is very primed to to finally popping off. There's a you know ton of investment that's gone there. There's extremely smart management teams that um, are focused there and operating there. They have the production to 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 get that going. Um, so I'm excited for eventually that to happen. Now in the international markets, the EU markets. Um, I think is going to be a much bigger market overall. More recently, uh, Ger- Germany's medical market is obviously the one to watch to eventually flip to adult use. I think that would be a watershed moment for the overall EU. And I think that eventually all the countries will start to follow suit. Um, but we're, you know, not? yeah, we're watching out for that. Cool. And here's a follow-up from Justin. I, I don't know if this is something you want to speak to or not, but will there be any companies in, U- in the U.S. or Canada playing in the Mexican market? Um, in the U S I don't know. Um, you know, the U S operators are, are so focused on undersupplied, uh, U S states flipping to adult use and the high ROCs that they're seeing in those states that most of them haven't invested in, in, in other international markets. A couple have, um, but, uh, definitely the licensed producers in Canada, um, who have been very focused on the international markets and have now fortified their balance sheets by quite a bit. So I think that they would definitely focus on that. Um, if it, you know, turns out to be a real, real market, I think that a lot of them are exhausted from making bets on markets that have taken a lot too long to, um, to turn on. So I think, um, you know, as that market starts to play out, yeah, I could see them making investments. Cool. So, you know, final question here for you, but when it comes to, the, the market as it exists right now, let's take away other catalysts in the, and, or, or not take them away entirely, but let's say they're more long-term, like legalization and stuff like that. Um, other than a certain company, which I know you're very close to, um, who, what, what companies are killing it right now? What companies would you be excited about uh, right now yeah. in this space? Yeah, look, so the, you know, the, long-term, uh, the long-term goal in the, in the, on the U.S. side of things Everyone kind of sees it. It's building the Coca-Cola, building the Pepsi of cannabis. Um, so, but how do you do that right now? I think it's virtually impossible to build a, a cannabis brand uh, in a market that's um, the first three years of an adult use program. There's just, usually it's just such a supply constrained market that the consumer is going to buy anything that's on the shelves and preferably the any something that has the highest THC and the lowest price point, right? So, Building a cannabis, a national cannabis brand is extremely hard, especially how fragmented the market is. You can't move product across state lines and you have to set up, you know, a separate business in every single state. But the companies right now that are building out a national 
um, nationally vertically integrated footprint, uh, which is to me is kind of like building out this national distribution channel. And the only way that you can do it right now are the only ones really set up to do so. And so I think over time, taking a, a step back, the companies that have um, set up such a broad distribution framework are going to be the ones in the uh, first mover advantage of being able to build those brands and kind of hone down on, on consumer uh, brand brand uh, equity um, in every single state. So to me, that that's the most exciting companies that are, are building brands across different states in a cohesive brand strategy, I think are the most exciting. Very cool. John Ramsey, thank you so much, sir. Measure 8 Venture thank Partners, God. really cool fund. And I look forward to seeing what you guys do next, man. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Take Have care. You too. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.